God, we thank you this morning for um, welcoming us, inviting us uh, to sing praises to you. God, we thank you for uh, the truths that we've proclaimed already this morning and the ones that uh, we are uh, about to consider. And I pray that... um, Regardless of where someone is coming from, God, maybe uh, they've had just the most difficult week ever. I pray that you would uh, draw near to them, that there would be a security that they would find this morning in your presence and in your power. God, for some who are maybe here for the first time, God, would you meet them and would you uh, let them see the proclamation of Jesus over their life and his invitation to them? For all of us, God, I pray as we turn our attention to your word, that you would meet us in it, you would reveal yourself, that you would grip our heart and captivate our emotions and stir within us faith that that can gain us so much in Christ. And so I pray that we'd see that clearly and walk faithfully in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. You can grab a seat and... uh, so glad you're here with us uh, this morning at Christ Church, and uh, happy uh, Labor Day weekend, and uh, thanks for gathering today, whether you're here in the room or with us online. Um, we're going to finish up um, a shorter kind of sub-series within the bigger uh, book of Acts that we've been studying together as a church. The sub-series was called Foundational. We spent a week talking about how important God's Word is. We talked about evangelism. And then last week, we introduced a two-week message on um, idols and uh, how God wants idols to fall in our life, and confronting those is important. And um, so where we're at is we're in Acts 17, and so you can turn there if you've got your Bibles uh, with you this morning. And um, last week, we introduced Paul, he was entering into Athens, and he sees in Athens um, just a, a, a place full of idols. Everywhere, people are just worshiping other gods, and uh, Paul's provoked by those idols. And we talked about uh, last week that it's not just in the culture of Athens, but it's in our culture where idolatry is rampant. And we should be a people that are provoked by idols. And so we, we shared a definition of an idol, just so we're all on the same page. This is from Brad Bigney's uh, a book, Gospel Treason. Here is the definition of an idol, just as we review last week's message, make sure we're all together. Um, An idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. So what could be an idol in your life? Anything. That's why we're in such trouble, because absolutely anything can become an idol. And so we talked about this last week, and we unpacked a little bit of how idolatry shows itself in our lives, and we said that... um, Idols must be confronted because our world is full of them, because idols never fully satisfy, and because they give us an incomplete knowledge of God. And so I talked about, I used sort of this illustration last week of the, the kind of carnival game or Chuck E. Cheese game, a whack-a-mole. And I said, you know what we need to do is our faith needs to take hold of the power and the glory and the majesty of God. And when idolatry starts to emerge in our lives, we're gonna, we're gonna by faith, we're gonna be like, no, no, God is greater than that. I'm not going to bow before that idol. I'm gonna be like, I reject that. And a God is greater and more powerful over that thing. And I challenge you to do that and to process through that. 
And we said that in every part of our life, we want to take hold of the supremacy of God by faith. And so what we're gonna see today is Paul um, unpacking more of what uh, he would speak into a world of idolatry. And we're gonna get a clear picture of the glory and the supremacy of Christ, and we're gonna have a clear understanding of where repentance needs to come into wherever idolatry is. And so um, Paul is now, before we get into verse 24, Paul is standing before the men of Areopagus, these esteemed people in the culture, in the community in Athens, and he says this. Look back in 23. He says, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship has unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So he's looking out, imagine him looking out over all the idolatry and going, he doesn't live in those temples. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, see he's connecting with the culture here, for we are indeed his offspring, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear from you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus of the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now if you step back from this passage and you look at it, the central call that Paul moves to in this proclamation or this sermon that Paul gives, the central call is to repentance. And so what I want you to see at the very beginning is, is that when Paul is provoked by the idols in the culture, the message has so much information and help and encouragement and conviction for us because the message is Paul's move in response to the idolatry. And he moves to repentance. That's fundamentally what it is, but we've got to walk carefully through this passage. We've got to get the perspective of this right. And so here's the big move. The big move that we're seeing is idols fall where repentance rises. Idols fall where repentance rises. And we're going to look at this, and we're going to see two critical elements from this passage that help us understand how idols fall where repentance rises. But before I jump into the first element, Let me just for a moment give a definition of repentance. We were talking about this with our staff this week and one person was like, hey, I've been in a church and never even understood the definition of repentance. 
So let's get a biblical definition of repentance in front of our whole church. We've shared this before in our church, and I'm sure we'll share it again. Repentance is a decisive move to abandon sinful ways, live obediently to Christ in his ways, and have remorse over past behavior and inclinations. So there's three main words in repentance that are important for repentance to be biblical repentance. It is abandon, obedience, and remorse. Abandon, obedience, and remorse. And so with that as an understanding of repentance, we're gonna get, we're gonna drive diving right deep into the subject of repentance in light of idolatry, okay? So let's look at this. First critical element about repentance seen from Paul's sermon in this passage is this. Repentance starts with an increasing knowledge of God. Note that when Paul sees the idolatry and he's provoked by it, he doesn't lead with, repent! Turn from your idolatry! He doesn't. What does he do? Do you see it there in the passage? It starts right in verse, right in verse 24. He starts to give them the truth about the known God. He's got to give them the truth about who God is before he calls them to repentance. He's got to establish in their mind and their understanding and their knowledge a, a base understanding of who God is. And so I want you just to see for a moment how packed this sermon is with little um, pictures of the character and the nature of God. So let's walk through it together. And I want you just in this moment, as I walk through these things, I want, I want you just in a, as a posture before the Lord, just ask the Lord, I just want to soak this in, Lord. I just want to soak this in. So here we go. First, identity of the one true known God. One, he starts with the God. The God. In this, what he's stating is he's stating that God is one. He doesn't say a God. He doesn't say one of many gods. He says the God. Right here, he says there's one known God, and I'm about to reveal him to you. Who made the world and everything in it. You can follow right along with the text. I'm literally going to break it down phrase by phrase who made the world and everything in it. And here we find church, Paul's like, God is creator. He's creator. He formed the world, every part of it. And, and, and this reaffirms the Genesis account, the very beginning of, of redemption being revealed to us back in Genesis 1. Next, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. You can write down here, God is completely self-sufficient. God does not need anything. We need everything from God. So God in his everythingness is like, I'm inviting you to come and receive from me, but God does not need anything. He's completely self-sufficient. And I'm really happy about that because I am very needy. Anybody with me? Okay, I thought you guys were going to leave me up here. Leave me hanging. Okay, it continues. He says, uh, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So let's just sit in that phrase for a little bit. Uh, God cre There's three things here. God created humans. Do you guys just, just spend some time this week reflecting on how influential it is to your soul and your identity for you to realize and recognize and believe and take hold of the fact that God created you. Just that alone is enough. And then 
God sustains life. Every breath he sustains and God orders all of life. It says he gives to all mankind everything. He's like, just in case you thought that something was outside the category of what he, um, what he takes care of and orders, um, it's everything. He continues, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Here, God is in control. This is where the word sovereign gets rightly applied to God. It's verses like this and others. It says that he determined every boundary, every place, every move, all of it. God is in control. And we rest in that. And yes, there's aspects of God's sovereignty that are difficult for us to reconcile and things happen that we don't want or desire. And into that, I believe God's word speaks to it, but not specifically all the time. And sometimes we have to trust God's ways in this, but what you can be certain of is that he's determining these things. God is in control. Next, number six, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And here you see God reveals himself. I love thinking about the graciousness of God in, in the way that he reveals himself. There's three categories that some theologians talk about. They talk about a general revelation, which is what happens when you go outside on a really beautiful day and look at the sun and the, and the, the beach and the water, and you're just like, God is awesome. That's general revelation, God's creation. There's also... Um, Within that, there's direct revelation. Direct revelation is the fact that, that God himself sent his son into the world. It's the specific story of the gospel that's direct. He interacted with our world. And then, a finally, specific revelation. Specific revelation is, I got this Bible, God's uh, a holy word, all 66 book, books of it, um, God spoke this to us for our guidance and to lead us forward. And so um, God always uh, reveals himself. Paul continues, yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we, for we are indeed his offspring. Here, God is omnipresent. God is present and close, and what Paul's doing here is he's confronting the reality of idolatry that suggests at times within idolatry that if I, if I have, if I give enough to this idol, that I will then gain favor from God and God will draw near to me. And, and the Bible says again and again, no, God's not present in like objects like pantheists would say, but here's the reality of God's character and posture towards us is that God is ready and present to receive us, to embrace us, to draw near to us. And he's omnipresent that we can find him if we turn to him. Paul continues, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Can you see him just looking out at the idolatry all around, the formation of things that they were bowing their knees to? an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And I wrote down here, God is indescribable. God is indescribable. Your imagination cannot even begin to express his glory. Together, throughout the history of the world, the combined work of imagination and creative expression cannot 
come remotely close to God's glory. He's indescribable. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Here we see that God is gracious. There's repentance being offered. Church, please make sure that you see in this that there's gra- the graciousness of God first in his overlooking. First, and he's like, I'm gonna overlook your ignorance. Then on top of that, any time that repentance is offered from God, that is unbelievably gracious because we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. Not any person in this room or through the history of mankind has gotten to a place where their holiness was such that in light of God's holiness, they would not be flat on their faces. God is so gracious to us. He doesn't just reveal himself. He overlooks and he offers repentance. And in repentance, what he's offering us is a, is a new heart, a new spirit, a new life, new ways of thinking, a new purpose, eternal life, relationship with God the dump truck of blessing just gets backed up into your life in, in, in salvation. And God just pours out his blessings through his graciousness, and I promise you, we do not deserve it. He continues, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. You can write down here, God will judge. God will judge. <laughs> you, you, Church, we know enough just from this passage to know that God is worthy of all of our praise and glory and honor. Can't we? We can see it just from this passage, just from these few verses. He is righteous and we are not. And the difference between his righteousness and our not righteousness, that requires judgment for God to be just. But in the gospel, Jesus declares that through his death on the cross, that this gap that I can't even express with my arms because it's way further than this, is completely and sufficiently covered through the blood of Jesus Christ that covers over our lives and his sufficient, uh, finished work on the cross brings us forgiveness, covers us, and, and this is a picture of, yes, God will judge, but for those of us who are in Christ, we know that because of Christ, we're declared not guilty. We gotta prepare because God will judge, but those who cling to the work of Christ on the cross by faith, we are justified, forgiven, and made righteous by Christ. And like I said just a second ago, declared not guilty. But God will judge That should give us an urgency to our responsiveness to this. And then he concludes, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God gives hope. He gives hope. Listen, he points to the resurrection because the resurrection is the evidence. It's the exclamation point on the gospel. That's why Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 15. He's like, listen, if you don't believe that Jesus raised from the dead, uh, you, you are to be pitied more than any man. If you believe these right things about God, but not the resurrection, because the resurrection is the exclamation point on the end. It's the confirmation. It is the assurance. The assurance. Do you remember in Hebrews 11.1 what the definition for faith is? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen. Assurance is so tied up in our understanding of the word hope. Hope is assurance. It's enough assurance to give us hope. It works together. And, and, and the, God's victory declared in the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us hope and faith takes hold of this truth. And just, just put, put all these all up on one side. One side, we got all of these. This is the identity of the one true known God. Honestly, studying this message, I, I, I thought back and I was like, man, this would have been an awesome passage for me to spend like five years with my kids just being like, let's just get this down. Let's just get this down. So if parents of you are like, I don't know where to go with my kids in the Bible, helping you, helping you. And let's just as a people just like look at that and, and, and be in awe of the one true known God. And when you see this, there should be something that wells up within you that says, I want to exchange any illusions I have of God that are not true. I want to exchange them to have relationship with that real God, the known God. You gotta know the identity. And so here's, here's why this is so important. It's why repentance must start with the knowledge of God. Because repentance is abandoning something, it's moving to obedience, and it's remorse for past actions. You will never make that decisive move until you have clear knowledge about another option. Do you see that? That's why Paul uses the word ignorance. Ignorance is a lack of knowledge or education. It means you're unaware of another option. You cannot repent. You cannot move to something else until you know there is something else to move to. (laughs) You don't realize what you're missing if you've only tasted vanilla ice cream your whole life. Okay, like I'm sorry, if that's, if that's your situation, if you've been oppressed in regards to all of the options there are in a t- flavors of ice cream, if you've been held back and not allowed this, this unbelievable freedom that exists in our world, and, and if that's the case, um, listen, uh, let me know. I will take you to Frosty Cove and I'll give you a chance to try some other Hudsonville flavors like, and it will be so unbelievable for you. But, but here's the thing, you won't know what you're missing until you know there's something to try, to experience. If you've spent your whole life believing that credit card debt is the norm, another illustration, then you're ignorant about the freedom that comes from living debt free. If you've been told there is no God all of your life, never told about Jesus and his gospel, then you're you're going to be ignorant of the things I've presented today. And if you have ignorance about any aspect of the character, ways, or plan of God, and let me just assure all of us that we all have ignorance in some areas, okay? Like, just turn to your neighbor and be like, "I I got some ignorance. I've got some areas of ignorance in my life. And this is why, church, we have to bring our lives under the authority of God's word. Because you're never gonna move in repentance to something else if you don't know the something else that God offers. Watch this, Peter says it clearly in 1 Peter 1.14. He says, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And so write this down. It's present here in Acts 17 and in 1 Peter. You cannot be holy until you see holy. Our move to being made more like Christ comes first by beholding him. And you will never be holy until you see holy. You'll never move from something until you know that there's something so much greater. And and this move is why that you'll never move to repentance until you know something else that God offers. Repentance starts with an increasing knowledge of God. Idols fall where repentance rises. Idols fall where repentance rises. Then this next critical element. Repentance is active where faith personally takes hold of the knowledge. Repentance is active where faith personally takes hold of the knowledge. So Paul looks out into Athens and he sees all of this idolatry, just like I pointed out last week in our world. All the places where we're captured, our hearts and minds and affections are captured by these things and we hold on to them. Some are ways of thinking, some are beliefs that speak over our lives, some are experiences or that we believe we should have or that we wish we didn't have or so many different things. And Paul prepares them for repentance by giving them a knowledge of God so that they have something to move to. And then he calls them to repentance. And repentance has to go beyond knowledge. It starts with the knowledge of God. There's an opportunity for repentance because of knowledge. That's why you have to start there with the knowledge of God. But repentance goes beyond knowledge and responds with faith. It personally takes hold of the knowledge and now begins to apply it to areas of my life, both outside me and internally in my own heart and way of thinking. See, true repentance, church, always leads to transformation. And you might be like, how? How, how do you know that? Um... The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. Metanoia is really similar to the English word metamorphosis. It's the same base idea. And so for repentance to be repentance, there has to be transformation. It's inherent in the word. In addition to that, I also want to point out that that in the nature of the word of repentance used right here, Paul's inviting us to it, calling us to this, Repentance is not a word that happens in the past and then ends. Repentance has a beginning point, but no end point. Repentance starts in a moment when I recognize that I need to make a move, but repentance never gets to the point where I'm like, sweet, I've arrived. So, so the, 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 the Christian faith means that it doesn't matter how long anyone has walked with Jesus. If we were to talk and you were like, I've been walking with Jesus for three years, and I'd be like, I've been walking with Jesus for like over 20. Um, I'm still keeping with repentance. That's why John the Baptist in the Gospel of Luke said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Church, this is why the word progressive is used in front of sanctification in theology. The sanctification process, the work of God transforming your heart to be made more like Christ is progressive over time 
because we're supposed to be keeping with repentance. And repentance goes beyond knowledge and responds with faith. Repentance is active where faith personally takes hold of the knowledge. Listen, I I don't understand honestly, both in my own life in certain areas and certainly as I've ministered uh, to different people in my uh, ministry career and my life as a Christian. I don't understand how you can see the revelation of God that we just considered and not be transformed. I don't understand how that's possible. I do believe that people can have a right understanding of God and be like, man, he's so powerful, he's so awesome, he's sovereign, and he gives hope, and he's, he's gonna judge, and all of the things we talked about, and you can sort of go, man, you come in on Sunday, you're like, I'm so thankful for this God, he's awesome. You can sing the things, you can proclaim these realities, You can walk around the whole reality of who God is and there is fundamentally something different between that and this. This is biblical faith, it's biblical repentance and it leads to transformation. It leads to transformation. Repentance doesn't just exist in a moment. It's not just a moment and I come in and this is the problem I think in religiosity is we come in and we hold it for a little bit we're like, yes, I love it. And then we leave the room and go home and we're like, I'll pick it up next week. And the true followers of Jesus Christ, when they've gazed upon the glory of Jesus Christ and understand how God wants to personally transform their life, they grip it and you cannot get it out of their hands, not for eternity. I don't know if you've ever had a moment when you uh, had something really exciting to communicate to someone and then you communicated it to them and they were just like, oh, that's cool. Right, you guys have had some times like that? Parents, have you ever had the moment when you're like, we got the perfect present for a child, especially when kids are younger, this happens all the time, and you're like, I know they're gonna love this present and they open it up and they're like, box. You know, I'm like, next Christmas, I'm just buying you five boxes. And, uh, and we, we understand this. I'll never forget, it was fall 1999. Um, I had just proposed to Amy, and uh, she said yes, so I was pretty excited about that. And uh, Amy uh, called her mom, Mary, and, and to tell her that she was engaged. And Amy shares this news, and on the other end, it got really quiet. Amy asked her if she was okay. Mary's response, I need to call you back, and then hung up. (laughs) Not what Amy was hoping. Not what I was hoping. Then later on, she would ask Amy, are you sure? (laughs) Now listen, after, after being married to her daughter for 21 years and six years of her living with us, I'm pretty confident today that she is sure about my love and commitment to her daughter and to her. And honestly, if I was to rightly reflect back on that, if you were to know me in my early 20s, I think I would have been a little hesitant also. And uh, Mary's caution was probably, uh, uh, shows a tremendous amount of wisdom. But Paul, in this message, is not talking about a male in his early 20s. He's talking about the identity of the holy and good and loving and awesome God that reveals himself in scripture and that Paul is testifying to. And if we are hearing and believing what Paul is saying, 
we have to be moved. If the known God is represented by these characteristics that we've looked at, just look at them again. Look at these again. If we believe that this is true, then everything you know about everything must be informed by your knowledge of God. These truths have profound implications on your past, on your present, and on your future. They have implications for the depth of every part of your existence. They should color every way you see your life and this world. And when you understand this, and when faith takes hold of it, and when you apply it to specific areas of your life, what's happening in this moment is worship. It's not something maybe as violent as a hammer illustrates, but it is worship because when you do that, when repentance happens in your life, over every area of your life, you are crying out with a song just like you sang earlier, and what you're saying over these areas of your life, when you see and understand the truth of the known God, and when you take hold of it by faith, what you're singing over every area of your life where this is applied by faith, is God is greater. He's greater over this area of my life and this area of my life and this pattern of thinking. And so what God's saying is he's saying to us, come out of ignorance, come out of rebellion and declare over all of your life that God is greater. Idols fall where repentance rises. The idols of other gods fall when faith takes hold of the supremacy of God in the Bible. God is greater. Idols that have led to sin year after year, moment after moment in your life fall when when faith takes hold of the warning that God gives in regards to sin and his desire to protect your life from the consequences and you take hold of that and you just declare over that God is greater. I'm not going there. Idols of marriage and parenting fall when faith takes hold of God's desire to steward those well and honor God in every aspect of that. The idol of control falls when faith takes hold of God's control and you trust his will and ways and you declare over that area that you're trying to control. God is greater. The idol of significance falls when faith takes hold of God's supremacy and you decide to stop living for your significance and just simply to make Christ famous. And you say over your area of wanting significance, God is greater. The idol of comfort falls when faith takes hold of how God wants to use trials to showcase his glory and his goodness, and you say over that, God is greater. See, church, the problem is is that repentance for too long has been taught in the church as something that goes like this. Oh, I'm so ashamed of what I've done. I'm so uh, tired of this pattern of my life. I need to change my life. Repentance says, I now see clearly that God is so much greater. And how quickly do I want to let go of that thing? Even when it finds its way back into my hands, I see so clearly that God is greater and I want to drop that and take hold again of God's greatness and his supremacy by faith. Bring your entire life, all of your heart, all of your knowledge, all of your thoughts, all of your actions underneath the truth of this known God. Then, 
in your life, repentance will rise and idols will fall. Repentance is the urgent message of the church. We've seen it already in the book of Acts. We see it throughout the New Testament. This is the clarion call. This is the clearest picture of what is supposed to be noted about the followers of Jesus Christ. And really what it means is, is that when God comes to judge, both in my life and in your life, I want you to be singing over all aspects of your life. God is greater. God is greater. And there'll come a day when the glory will be so clearly seen that no longer will we have to, by faith, swing this over areas of our life because all the idols will have fallen. And Jesus will reign in perfection over that, in that throne and we will bow before him for eternity. So how do we respond to this message from Paul? Well, it's right there in the passage. I mean, we can see some responses that play out after this message is communicated. Three different responses. Mock, want to hear more, and believe. And I'm certain in a room like this that there's a mix of all three. Some of you have your hands for so long wrapped around a part of your life, a aspect of thinking. And, and, and if I was to sit with you, you'd be like, I'm not letting that go. God's not great enough for this. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not letting this go. And you would mock God in the way that you're holding on to that. God promises that he will not be mocked. And I want so badly to encourage you to release your hands from that and to take hold of the God who is greater. But if you remain in that posture, I want you to know that we'll walk alongside you lovingly, but we're gonna point you again and again to the God that is greater. Because we know that there's no greater satisfaction for that area of your heart that you believe is filled up by that thing you're holding on to. There's no greater filling than the filling that God wants to bring every aspect, every layer of your life, all the world does is tries to fill cups with something that will never fill your cup. And the gospel fills it perfectly and gently and wonderfully. So if you're mocking, you're, the message here lovingly is always gonna be let it go. Let it go and declare over that part of your life that God is greater. For some of you who want to hear more I'm so thankful for the conversations that happen in and around ministry where people come and they just say, can you help me? I feel like I'm ignorant in this area of my life because it's hard and I don't know if I'm walking rightly. Please know that, that, that questions about faith, about the character of God, about sin and fallenness will be met with patience and love and care. It's taken 20 years plus for God to drill at some of the things that even in my life in the last year, I feel like he's getting to in ways that I never would have even known possible 15 years ago. So just know that we're gonna walk with you like people have walked with me, patiently and lovingly, but we'll, we'll try and walk alongside you, pray alongside you, point you to God's word, and what we do know is we know that over whatever situation that you have questions about, God is greater. And for those of you that are believing, I would believe and hope and I've prayed that even this morning maybe someone's been here and been like, this, this has been me. This has been me for so long. I've come so close. And maybe it was something in the message today that the Spirit of God is doing and you're just like, for the first time, you're like, I'm, I'm gonna take hold of this. 
I'm going to put my faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's for the first time, I, I, I just I pray that you would come let us know. And we want to walk alongside you in believing so that you would keep and bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Some of you this morning, I believe that the response that God's calling you to, where there's an area of your life where there's been some distance and maybe there's been some rebellion or maybe your eyes were open to something in your life more deeply than ever and, and in believing, you're like, no, 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 no. God's greater than this thing I've been holding on to. And that because repentance is rising, that idols would fall. And together, as a church, this is what we're going after. Why? Both for the satisfaction of our souls and so, and so, that the world would see clearly that this God is really who we say he is. Not, we're not perfectly being transformed, but we're being transformed. And we're a people that, uh, that is increasingly humble and wanting to grow and learn and bring our lives again and again before God's gracious is before his character. And so let me just pray over those three categories of people that I'm certain are in our um, service this morning. Let's pray together. God, I, um, I just thank you for the way that idols fall where repentance rises. And I thank you for the ways that repentance has been such a wonderful thing in my life and even now, God, reminded of things that so recently you've been doing such a sweet work in my heart and mind on. And I pray this, God, over these people that you've called me to lead, and I just want for you to lead us to places of repentance. Not because we're ashamed and trying to change, not because we believe that we can do it in our own power, but because our eyes have gazed upon the majesty of who you are. And we don't want to hold those things anymore. And we're letting them go and they're falling because we're turning and we're abandoning those things and we're wanting to live in obedience to you and we're looking back on those things with remorse. God, I don't want to go there anymore. And when we find them back in our hands again, I pray that we would see that your graciousness calls us again as ignorant and rebellious children and and you just want to grip us and draw us close and speak your truth over our lives again. And so God, in that, I pray that you'd increasingly make us more beautiful, more like you, more holy, because we've seen holy. So serve us, God, through the work of your spirit, through the continued work of your word, through the community in this place, to care for one another, to walk alongside one another that you might be honored and glorified and so that repentance would rise and idols would fall. We pray for that in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.